If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. Three little black girls murdered nine months ago and still not one single arrest. And we have exclusive new information about the triple homicide investigation and the horrific discovery of sexual molestation. There's a child killer on the loose in that county and nobody is aware who this person is, where that person is, or when they may strike next. Plus, the alleged Alabama teen killers who could be sentenced to life. Should the teenage shooters be charged as adults? And when is it right to sentence a 16-year-old to life in prison? It was calculated, it was premeditated. Then, did the Cabo Six get away with murder for real? As the U.S. Department of Justice says no one will be charged in Shanquella Robinson's death, not even the woman caught on tape beating Robinson. We examine if anyone will ever be held accountable. Plus, I'm Kennedy Rue. From music to film, television, and all things streaming, we're breaking down what's behind Hollywood's long-awaited black female renaissance. It's all straight ahead as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Mara S. Campo. A child killer is on the loose in Northeast Texas. Three sisters were found dead in a pond last summer. They'd been strangled, but officials initially said they'd drowned, the first of many apparent missteps in this investigation. Now, the district attorney is pushing back, saying they've handled the investigation just fine. But our reporting suggests otherwise. We've learned shocking new details about the investigation as we continue to ask why no one has been arrested in the more than eight months since a triple child murder. Officials have recovered the bodies after they were reported missing last night in Cass County. It's been nine months since three little Texas girls, Ariel Robinson Oliver, Amaya Hughes, and Tamari Robinson Oliver, disappeared. The sisters, ages nine, eight, and five, were reported by their male babysitter to have simply vanished. Their mother, Shamanique Oliver, saying she got the news at work. When I got the call, the only thing my cousin had said was that my kids were missing. He didn't specifically say which kid or how many kids. What went through your mind immediately? Like, how did they end up missing when they was in the house? Why are you just not calling me? Shouldn't you be calling 911 first? Within hours, the girls were discovered in the dark waters of a rural pond over this fence line, about 500 feet from their home in Atlanta, Texas. The family and the media told it appeared to be a drowning, a terrible accident. Uh, we never knew about a pond being back there, so they never would have stepped foot over there. Then, months later, a surprise development. Nearly eight months later, after their bodies were pulled from a Cass County pond, the DA says that case is now a homicide investigation. An autopsy reveals all three girls were strangled to death. The news raising huge questions about the investigation. So much time has gone by uh, and really nothing has happened. We don't understand how three beautiful little black girls could be murdered in this county 
and yet the lead investigative agencies did not even know it was a murder. They looked at it as an accidental drowning. According to the Texas Penal Code, all human deaths must be treated as a homicide until that is specifically ruled out. And in a newly released statement, the district attorney's office says, quote, the case was immediately treated as a homicide investigation, adding they told the mother that the deaths of all three children were not accidents. But that's not what Oliver told us. The girl's mother exclusively sharing with Revolt Black News that officials initially told her it looked like a drowning. And more than a week passed before officials told her the girls had been murdered. She says that was around August 9th, and that's the last time she's heard anything from them, receiving no updates whatsoever on the murder of her three children for almost nine months. The mother's most shocking allegation? She claims police have never interviewed her cousin, Paris Props. Props, seen here in 2018 images posted online after a confrontation with Cass County Police, was responsible for watching the children. He was the last person seen with the girls the night they disappeared. Who was there taking care of them that night while you were at work? My cousin, Paris Props. Has he ever described to you what happened the night the girls went missing? He won't even talk to me or nobody else. He has a long criminal history going back almost 10 years for various offenses, including drug possession, weapons charges, tampering with evidence, and promoting prostitution. Oliver says one of her three surviving children told police she remembered an important detail from the night her sisters disappeared. My four-year-old have already told Texas Rangers that the girls went in the woods with Paris, but they said she's too little. Did he attend the funerals? Yes, but he was asleep. He what? He was asleep. Do you believe that any of your three girls that were found in that pond had been molested? From the autopsy and what we were told by the Texas Rangers, yes, they were. All three. Despite all of this, when I spoke with Cass County District Attorney Courtney Shelton last month, she confirmed to me that they do not have a suspect. Right now, there's a child killer on the loose in that county, and nobody is aware who this person is, where that person is, or when they may strike next. Houston Black Panther New Nation leader Quanell X has been trying to help the girl's mother get answers, which he says has been very difficult for a poor Black family in rural Texas. When you get to Cass County, you don't think you're in a, you don't think you're in a two in 2023. You would think more of the 80s. It's almost shocking when you see some of the homes where our people are living. You would not believe in 2023. Do Black people feel safe there? I would say Cass County is not so much a sundown town. It's by three o'clock, get the hell out of town. When you look at Cass County, sundown is calling it nicely. In that county, you would think you better be in the house by five o'clock before, before the sun even gets close to setting. The racial climate, the racial environment that our people live under in that city, under no illusion. I mean, it's as thick as you can cut it with a butter knife. So is this the kind of place where a black child's life has value? No, Cass County is not a place where a black man or woman's life has value. And it's obvious to all of us now, even a black murdered children's lives 
has no value. Because if this case had value, the Sheriff's Department would be doing a whole lot more. They don't give a damn about black children or black people in Cass County. Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. It's been over a week since chaos broke out at a Sweet 16 birthday celebration in Alabama. Investigators say six people opened fire, killing four people and injuring 32 others. Arrested for the crime? These young men. Two are teenagers who police say will be charged as adults. Tonight, Revolt Black News investigates why so many teenagers are charged and convicted as adults. In a split second, a party turned to panic. A nightmare, I just, it's just something, that, a nightmare that I don't wish on any parent that just knows to go in and, I, and see my baby laying there, you know, in a pile of blood. Gunfire erupting at a Sweet 16 celebration in Alabama. Lord, we pray that you would be with their parents, that they would be able to comfort them. Injuring 32 people and killing four. 23-year-old Corbin Holston, aspiring musician, 19-year-old Marcia Emanuel, 17-year-old Shankivia Smith, a promising athlete and athletic manager, and 18-year-old Phil Dowdle, a standout athlete headed to Jacksonville State University on a scholarship. He was everything that you would want in a son. He, he always did everything that made me happy. We pray that our intercession will be made known with you. Within a week, officials arrested six for the mass shooting. Three are underage, just 17, 16, and 15. The alleged gunman now facing murder charges. And for the 16 and 17-year-olds, that means being charged as adults. Arrested and charged Tyreek McCullough, 17 of Tuskegee, and Travis McCullough, 16, also of Tuskegee, with four counts of reckless murder each. In Alabama, anyone over 16 facing murder counts is automatically moved out of the juvenile system. Based on the facts that are out there right now, it sounds like a case where there would be justification for, for charging them as, as adults. It was calculated, it was cold, it was premeditated. Based on the facts that I do know, the former prosecutor in me is saying, you know, to a certain extent, you have to protect the community. And if you have someone out here that just lets out on 32 people 
that's a lot. That's a lot to, um, that's a lot to swallow. While many believe the charges are justified in this case, it's not always so simple. All 50 states have some type of provision in place that allows juveniles to be prosecuted as adults. In states like Washington, Vermont, and Montana, children as young as 12 can be prosecuted as adults. Juveniles get more of a break from the system, often probation instead of time, no cash bail, and can have their record wiped clean when they turn 18. Kids tried as adults are treated just like adults, facing long sentences, including life, a permanent record, and being placed in adult prisons. And just like in almost every other part of the criminal justice system, black boys are punished the most harshly. While black kids are approximately 14% of the population, they make up more than 47% of those transferred to adult court as juveniles. And in Florida, 61% of those transferred from juvie to adult court in 2021 were black. When uh, I was about 17 years old, I was charged with attempted murder and I spent eight years in adult prison system. Andre Sims got caught up in the system after getting into a fight with his brother in their front yard when he was 14. He says police officers on patrol saw them and he was arrested and charged with aggravated assault and sentenced to probation. When he got in trouble again a few years later, it wasn't his first offense and he found himself in adult prison as a teenager. I was immediately placed in segregation and solitary confinement. I was damaged from just being by myself so much. You know, I just had trouble adapting after that. I had trouble adapting to regular population. And so I went from being in solitary confinement for no reason at all to for years being in and out of solitary confinement because I'm just, you know, either fighting peers, I'm fighting the guards, I'm fighting myself. You know, it's just so much built in with that. Up until the early 1800s, kids as young as seven could be tried and sentenced to life in prison or even given the death penalty. In 1944, 14-year-old George Stinney became the youngest person ever put to death executed after being convicted of murdering two white girls. His conviction overturned 70 years later. Stinney was reportedly too small for the electric chair, so he had to sit on a Bible. The first juvenile court was created in 1899 to focus on rehabilitating kids, not punishing them. But then we hit the 90s. Crime soared and so did mass incarceration, going from approximately 300,000 people locked up in the early 1970s to more than 2 million by 2020, according to the ACLU. And that's when rehabbing kids took a backseat to punishing them. In 1975, 10,400 kids were tried as adults. In the adult crime for adult time era of the mid 90s, that number soared to 250,000. Today, those numbers are down more than 80%. Still, an estimated 53,000 kids were charged as adults in 2019. These are kids that typically are not welcome in the traditional mental health system because of their behavior problems. Um, so it's very, very hard to, for them to get access. Once they've been identified as a juvenile justice involved youth, a lot of psychiatric facilities will not accept them because of their concern about how disruptive their behavior may be and their effect on their staff and other kids. Our solution has been the same for years. Prisons and charging young people as adults 
has been a solution for so long and we're at a, at a point where we're still seeing gun violence at where it's at. So at what point as a, as a society, as a country, are we going to say, okay, this doesn't work. Locking kids up is not working. We need to find a real solution. It's not justice for anybody because all it does is cause more harm and it actually prevents the, the restoration of our community, the restoration of our society. We should note that one of the six suspects in the Dadeville case is a 15-year-old boy. He is being charged as a juvenile. Now, we really wanted to explore this topic a little further, so joining me now to do that and look at both sides, Anthony Pickens, prison and community activist, and attorney Keith Lamar, former president of the National Black Prosecutors Association. Anthony, I want to start with you on this, because you were arrested and charged as an adult when you were 15 years old. You were sentenced to a minimum of 29 years in prison, a maximum of life. You were convicted of murder. So from a victim's family's perspective, I have to ask why you feel that uh, it's, it's problematic for teens to be charged and, and as adults and to receive these long sentences when the victims would say, our loved one can't come back. I absolutely agree with the statement from a victim's standpoint that our loved ones can't come back and also have a personal testimony to that as well because my victim's uncle, when I was sentenced as a child, also told the courtroom he didn't believe I should be getting the amount of time that I received because he was looking at a child in his courtroom and he understood the role that I had ahead of me. So though I deeply respect the victim's voices as well, that's also not the sole voice of the victims. Uh, now, Keith, you do take a, a bit of a harder line in uh, trying teens as adults, but to Anthony's point, you know, these are fundamentally children. And there's a lot to be said about holding a child responsible as an adult when they are, in fact, still children. Why do you think that it's appropriate to try 14, 15, 16-year-olds as adults and potentially convict them and sentence them to the rest of their lives in prison? The reason I feel that way uh, depends on the crime. You have to do a case-by-case -case analysis. You can't just say, hey, 15, immediately charge them as an adult. But I look at what's going on in the case. What happened in the case? Was the kid just an innocent bystander? Were they a party to a crime? And that might be a little different on how I stand. But if you decide you want to go and shoot up an entire family or go on a block and rob somebody at gunpoint and shoot them at gun, you know, face to face, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to pay for that. Anthony, in this specific case that we just covered um, in Alabama, you have this group of young men, many of them teens, who indiscriminately sprayed this party with bullets, killed four people, injured 32. What do you think is the appropriate course of action now with the teens in this group? If you don't think they should be charged as adults, then what do you think should happen? Uh, yes, individuals may have made horrible decisions, especially as, as a youth. And, and lives were lost. And I think as a community and as a justice system, we need to spend more time asking why did these kids do such a thing and get to the root causes that systemically is in our communities and then come around these youth and figure out proper treatment recourses. Because prison, I've been there. It doesn't rehabilitate you. Like you don't put a kid in prison and then prison cares about your transformation. It's the complete opposite. What was that experience like, being a child, essentially, um, treated as an adult in the, in the criminal justice system? Uh, distinctively, I can remember in the beginning, I had absolutely no idea what was going on. I'm 15 years old. 
when they started talking about minimums of 20 plus years, I'm like, I'm fit. I don't even understand this. So then once it happened and I ended up in the system, it became a manner of being so young and trying to survive. Then it became a manner of becoming a man and making certain decisions for myself that's going to help me flourish in my transformation. Then it became okay, how can I get out of here and serve my community in the same way I served the community I was just in in prison? Uh, Keith, I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about the racial disparities that we see when it comes to uh, trying some of these juveniles as adults. I want to read you a statistic. Black youth make up approximately 14% of the total youth population, but approximately 47.3% of youth who are transferred to adult court. What's your response in knowing that this is not applied evenly, that it is far more likely for black teens to be tried as adults than it is for other groups? That's, that's ridiculous. If you didn't try the white kid as an adult for the same crime, especially if you're in the same jurisdiction, I definitely should uh, sit and see you trying a black kid for the same crime as an adult. That's not fair. That's not what the system's built on. That's why people don't believe in the system. Um, I do think, I do agree with him though. It does come, you have to figure out what is causing people to want to do this. Why is it that this kid woke up that day and decided, you know what, we finna go do this. And it's a very heinous crime, I, I hate it. I know why the DA is trying them as adults. It kind of, you kind of force their hand. People lose their lives. Um, you have other family members that are crying that want to see justice. And if, I know here in Georgia, for instance, I think five years is the max that you're gonna get as a juvenile. Uh, so for somebody to be murdered, it's tough. But Anthony, I would love for you to respond um, to what Keith just said about states where they have maximums for how long a juvenile can be incarcerated for. Because if someone who's underage commits murder and then serves three years or five years and then has the rest of their life to live, is it fair to the victims? I think what's the most fair to the victims, I think what equals justice the most, is contributing to helping that individual change. That's the first thing I'll say. The other part of that equation is, in more states than not in this country, the juvenile system with treatment and how they treat juveniles and the type of programs they can receive to change and to transform are more available than they are in prison. Prisons technically don't have them. Um, in my state, there is no minimum. Everybody across the board, if you go to court for a murder charge and certain charges, you have a mandatory minimum sentence all the way across the board. Yet, still in those statistics, when you see people with life sentences in my state, in the state of Oregon, where I did time it, more black youth got life sentences than white youth with the same charges. So I think that's a problem as well. And so the solution to that, in my opinion, and in the communities where I, where I speak, is that we need to address these things in the beginning. But throwing somebody in prison for the rest of their lives and they're not getting treatment anyway, how is that justice? Yeah, this is, this is a great and important conversation. Anthony, Keith, certainly appreciate you both being here and, and lending your perspective to this. After the break, we will have the latest on a case that we have been following closely. Now, the U.S. says it will not be prosecuting anyone in the death of Shanquella Robinson. So what now? A former FBI agent shares his thoughts. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba -ba. 
The family of Shanquella Robinson experienced a devastating blow last week when the Department of Justice revealed they will not be prosecuting anyone in the U.S. for her death. Robinson died in Mexico late last year while on vacation with friends. A video of her being brutally beaten seemed like solid evidence of a crime. But why wasn't that enough for charges? I spoke with a former FBI agent who says there's likely a lot more to this case. As we examine how to get away with murder for real, did the Cabo Six escape justice? Justice will be served. Justice will be served. It's going to be served. Shanquala Robinson's father, Bernard Robinson, speaking at his daughter's gravesite just days after the U.S. Department of Justice chose not to prosecute anyone in her death. You just don't take a life. They brutally beat her. She didn't agree to fight. Quilla, can you at least fight back? No. Shanquella was on vacation with six friends at a luxury resort in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico in October when she died suddenly. Her friends initially telling her mother it was alcohol poisoning. But two weeks later, this video surfaced, raising questions about what really happened. I just can't understand why, you know, the autopsy that I got back saying that her neck and spinal cord was broke. Hours after Shanquella's death, Mexican officials conducted a partial autopsy where they concluded she suffered a severe spinal cord injury and a broken neck. Good morning, is everyone ready? Weeks later, Shanquella's family sought a second autopsy here in the U.S. But by that time, Shanquella's body had already been embalmed, complicating the process. Unlike with the Mexican autopsy, U.S. officials weren't able to confirm what killed her. The cause of death, inconclusive. This two-week time has passed. This video begins to surface. The second autopsy is requested. There are things that cannot go back to the original body. You cannot go back and find what the Mexican authorities found. Because it was the death of a young, black, beautiful, brilliant, educated woman who was on vacation, justice was delayed. While the DOJ's announcement was incredibly disappointing for Shanquella's family, they are not giving up on seeking justice. Pray that they do get closure for the family's sake. Um, and closure look like to me is the Cabo Six being arrested. Shanquella's family plans to march to the White House in May to pressure high-level officials to pursue the only other option, extradite Dejanae Jackson, the woman Mexico says is seen on video beating Shanquella and a suspect. If you get a prosecutor that declines prosecution, there's nothing more that, that can be done unless more evidence comes. Private investigator and former FBI agent Phil Carson says the situation could change if new evidence is found. They keep mentioning that based on all available evidence, and they say that several times, so that tells me they don't have all the evidence. So can you tell me a little bit more about what that signals to you, that specific language? The only surveillance footage that, that I've seen is the what, 17-second uh, fight that took place inside the hotel room. You know, this is a high-end resort. There's surveillance cameras everywhere. And so there's got to be a lot of surveillance footage of what led up to, you know, what went on during the day, what went on in the evening, possibly were they drinking in the, in the hotel or the lobby or any restaurants, who was she having contact with or anything like that. Do you think this is evidence that they tried to secure and weren't able to, or that 
perhaps it just doesn't exist? It could be a combination of both. There is a trend that a lot of cases that involve, you know, assault or rapes or even homicides that take place in some of these Mexican resorts, it's not in the best interest of, you know, the Mexican tourism industry to actually publicize these events and display all the evidence and then have prosecutions come from it because that hurts tourism. So you're saying you think something else happened that then resulted in the injuries that we see reported on the Mexican autopsy. Yeah, based on that video, I think any reasonable person would say she may have a couple scratches on her or maybe a black eye, but in no way is that gonna cause death. Either something else took place that we didn't see on the video or the autopsy was wrong. Which, which do you think is more likely? I have no reason to believe that the autopsy is wrong because there has to be a reason that they would come to that conclusion based on her internal injuries from the autopsy. So based on that, that 17 second clip of that fight in the hotel room in no way substantiates that type of conclusion. So to me, there has to be something else. There has to be more video of that fight or something else had to take place after that fight. Civil rights attorney Justin Moore agrees this case is far from over. Is there a possibility of at least assault charges? Does the video give prosecutors enough evidence to pursue assault charges against this woman? I know uh, they've been pursuing murder charges, but nevertheless, an assault is a lesser included offense. And, you know, whatever the investigation was, I'm sure it included some sort of investigation into an assault as well. There is an extradition treaty between the United States and Mexico that deal with uh, drug trafficking, murder, assault, sexual assault. I mean, there's a wide umbrella for uh, the Mexican authorities in the United States to work together in these types of investigations. Can Shankwala's family file a civil suit? Who would they file it against? And do you think they have a strong case there? I mean, if I were advising the family, I probably would try and sue all six and challenge them to get out of the lawsuits themselves through motion practice. So I think there's some liability for everybody involved. And as it seems, nobody is talking right now. Somebody knows something and they're all staying quiet. So either they're all involved in the murder or they're involved in the cover-up, which is criminal ne negligence or civil negligence that they could be sued for. We always talk about justice uh, flowing equally, regardless of you know race, gender, creed, et cetera. Um, we just want equal justice here. And I'm not saying this as an advocate for Shanquilla Robinson. I am a neutral commentator about this case, but nevertheless, I am black. And I think that black people, whether it's you know domestic or international, should be able to get justice for things that happen to us. And the fact that she's not getting it is a huge problem. So at the end of the day, if this woman, Dejanay Jackson, was responsible for Shanquilla Robinson's death, as a lot of people think is the case, did she get away with murder? Yeah, yeah, I mean, possibly, yeah. I mean, there's a dead body. Somebody or something is responsible for that. And I have a hard time believing that somebody that, that, that drank too much alcohol, that that would have caused this death. And again, that's based on if, if the Mexican autopsy is saying that, you know, there were some spinal injuries, no spinal injuries took place based on that video clip that I saw of the fight. So there must be more. And over time, maybe there will be more information. 
Shankwala's family and supporters will go to Washington, D.C. on May 19th. They plan to march to the U.S. State Department demanding justice. Revolt Black News will be there, and we will keep you updated on any developments with the case. Coming up next, there is a renaissance sweeping through Hollywood. The black women making waves on screen in roles they've traditionally been shut out of. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Amazing surprise to close out Coachella. Zendaya taking the stage and performing with the band Labyrinth. That's the group behind the title song to her Emmy-winning HBO hit Euphoria, which, by the way, returns for season three in 2024. Welcome back. It's time to get all caught up now with what's jumping off on the pop culture and entertainment front. And Kennedy is here with that. Hey, Kennedy. Thanks, Mara. And by the way, Coachella was lit. I mean, I was on the ground to support my folks like Willow Smith and others, but we'll get to that. But we'll start things off as we put some shine on the wave of excellent and young powerhouses securing their place in the history books as Hollywood's Black Girl Renaissance continues to set the industry on fire. I feel like we're in a Black female renaissance mm. when it comes to performing, when it comes to artistry. Um, Talk to me about where you feel like we are in the space of black actresses, black artists, black musicians, black female um, creatives kind of stepping into their power in this specific moment. It is just that. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're in a, we're highlighting some areas that we don't normally see, um, specifically in the space of comedy. Okay, Tassels. Oh, Shay. Oh, damn, I'm ashy? No, I was saying. Ooh, good looking. Out, Nadia. You got my girl Robin Thede, yes. who has the Black Lady Sketch Show, which has mm -hmm. opened a space in a very niche area of comedy mm -hmm. that has been very much so male dominant male-dominated, white sure. male specifically. But I want to know, was it important for you to create a show that's unapologetically black? One of my biggest pet peeves in the industry is that oftentimes when we see people of color on television, mm -hmm. the people of, uh, who are writing for them do not look like that person. Um, you know, when you think of like an A Living Color or you think of a Mad TV or even an SNL, there's, you can literally probably hold in one hand a couple of names of the black women that were representing that. Mm -hmm. So what I love now is there's a space and there's a world where I am so excited for the next generation, this next future, yeah. that a show like our Black Lady Sketch Show, it mm -hmm. is inspiring a whole nother generation of writers, directors, creatives, you know, mm -hmm. um, comedians, like all of that. Yeah. And I think that's gonna be very special to see what grows out of that space. Black Lady Sketch Show co-star Gabrielle Dennis breaking it down. She stopped by Revolt Studios to not only talk about the black woman renaissance, but also about her latest gig co-starring in the Apple TV series, The Big Door Prize, in which she is broadening the conversation about race and casting. When you got the script for Big Door Prize, did it specify that your character was a black female or was that something that you just taking the role embodied? Honestly, I don't think it did. A lot of times they call you in because they don't mm -hmm. know exactly what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Like maybe the script started one way and then maybe it changed this way. And right. like you, you don't know what draft of the script that you get. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times they're just open to see what you bring to the table and like mm -hmm. what humanity do you bring? So I think that you, you just kind of go and you do your job and you hope for the best. 
That's what Yara Shahidi did taking on the role as Tinkerbell. She became the first black actress to play the fairy in the upcoming Disney film, Peter Pan and Wendy. You're playing such an iconic character that's historically been portrayed by a white actress. Is there pressure that comes along with tackling that and being different from the image that people have always had in their mind? I mean, I think what released some of the pressure for me was that some of the first conversations I had about this film were with the producers and with the director about what this newer, more inclusive version of Peter Pan and Wendy meant to them. How surprised were you that people were initially so attached to the identity of this fictional character? I mean, like you said, mm -hmm. this is a fairy tale. It's an imaginary world. And we often don't get to see people that look like us in these fantastical series. Yeah, I mean, Quite honestly, I think what's interesting is coming from a perspective of somebody that's black and Iranian, I think, mm -hmm. and experience so many black and brown folks of any really particular ethnic or minority background are familiar with is having to empathize with characters that don't look like us. And so it's interesting when that skill set that we've had to define for our entire lives isn't extended to us. And Yara joins the likes of Halle Bailey, whose Black woman renaissance is shaking things up as the first Black Little Mermaid, which was met with some pushback. There were a lot of people who were concerned that a fictional mermaid could not be played by a Black person because, historically, this character has been portrayed as white. Daily Variety senior entertainment writer Angelique Jackson says the time is right for Black women to stand tall and further shine in Hollywood. The Black woman renaissance has been brewing since Bridgerton and Grey's Anatomy creator Shonda Rhimes changed the game in front of and behind the scenes. What's so interesting about Shonda Rhimes is that, no, she's not, you know, the first black woman to ever run a show. You have people like Debbie Allen or Mara Brock-Akeel or Yvette Lee Bowser, but she absolutely changed the game. Young people need to see people who look like them working in front of and behind the screen. With her TGIT lineup, that thank God it's Thursday with Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, and How to Get Away with Murder, really changed the game. I feel very proud, I feel very lucky. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, any moment you step back and look, you think, my God, I'm really grateful. Her take charge approach helped kick the door down and carve out space for ladies like Ava DuVernay and eight-time Emmy nominee Issa Rae, who's behind HBO's hits Insecure and Rap Shit. Issa, so talk to me about being here at ABFF 2022 getting one of your initial starts here and then bringing rap shit here this year. I mean, it's kind of a full circle moment. It's absolutely a full circle moment. And to have a show that is set in Miami, uh, kind of loosely based on my experiences at ABFF yeah. is also like super, super full circle. And I just feel proud. And now other creatives are getting the chance to shine. You don't love me! Authenticity is what landed Zendaya her two Emmy wins for Euphoria, in which she not only stars, but is also an executive producer on the gritty HBO series. I'm always in the pursuit of like learning and growing, and what's so special, I think, about Euphoria is the people that I get to work with and learn from every day, you know? Um, and I feel like I'm in the, in, the, in the best place. I mean, one day I hope I can learn to direct, and that, that is a dream of mine. And Zendaya took Euphoria on the road to the desert for Coachella. She shocked the crowds by crashing labyrinths that to perform the Euphoria tracks, I'm tired and all for us. 
It was a jam-packed weekend of celebrating music, but I was there to support my bestie Willow Smith as she gave her black woman renaissance best, performing both weekends. Even her dad Will was in the crowd, clearly very proud of his daughter as he posted video of her performance, calling her set Willow Cella. And as Coachella wraps, another festival is just getting started. This weekend together, we're headed to Virginia Beach with our friends at Walmart to check out the Something in the Water Festival, celebrating Black entrepreneurs, creatives, and culture makers of all kinds. We'll have a complete wrap-up of the Something in the Water Festival on our next show. Stay with us. There's more Revolt Black News after the break. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba 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 At participating McDonald's. Doja Cat and her rendition of Hound Dog. Tonight, we salute Doja Cat, who was just chosen as one of Time Magazine's most influential people of 2023. One of the reasons Time picked her is because of her work on the Vegas soundtrack. By remaking Elvis Presley's hit song, Hound Dog, she introduced it to a whole new audience. But to us, the dopest part is that she reminded everyone that there would never have been an Elvis without the legendary black artist who created rock and roll. So congrats to Doja Cat. That does it for us. Remember to stay connected with us on Facebook, Twitter, Revolt on YouTube, our Revolt Black News podcast, and download the Revolt app. Until next time, good night, everyone. Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. 
It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before.